Welcome to Pull Quotes, a weekly podcast from the Ryerson Review of Journalism. I'm Michal Stein. And I'm Lydia Abraha. Thanks for joining us today. Today on Pull Quotes, we ask, what does mainstream Canadian media miss when it comes to covering the trans community? This is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, especially in following what's been going on with the pushback against the Ford government's decision to cut the 2015 sex ed curriculum. That, obviously, has huge implications for LGBTQ students, and at least six families are actually bringing a human rights challenge against the government on that basis. The main complainant is an 11-year-old trans child who lives in rural Ontario. As we look towards this upcoming case, we should take a moment to think about what blind spots we might be having when it comes to covering those communities. But first, let's take a minute to define some of those terms we're going to be using today. So transgender refers to someone who identifies with the gender other than the one they were assigned at birth. So, for example, a person who identifies as a woman but was assigned male at birth would be transgender. The term cisgender refers to a person who identifies with the sex they were assigned at birth. For example, a cisgender man is someone who was assigned male at birth and identifies as a man. You'll also hear the term non-binary come up a lot in the panel discussion. This refers to an expression of gender that exists outside of the strictly masculine-feminine binary. A person can be trans and non-binary. So TVO has a new podcast called Word Bomb, and they just put out an episode a couple weeks ago on the use of the singular they. I think it does a really good job of breaking down why these definitions and identities are so important. It's worth a listen. We've got the link in the show notes. Thanks for the recommendation, Mikal. Today, journalists Al Donato and Alex Furman join me to talk about how we as journalists can do better when covering trans issues. In our studio today, we're joined by Al Donato. Hey. And Alex Furman. Hi. Al Donato is the Associated Editor at Huffington Post Canada and a fellow Ryerson alumni. Hey. Alex Furman is a freelance writer who writes about subjects of transition, queerness, Jewishness, and the politics of identity and community. Alex has been published in This Magazine, Canada Land, Mike, Teen Vogue, A-Side, Guts, Torontoist, Keep yeah. going, yes. Yeah. Keep yeah. going. Yeah. Yeah. I just realized yeah. I was going to say. I love that. Um, okay. <laughs> this is like my Twitter bio walked around. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so maybe we could start off by just clarifying what pronouns you guys would like to be referred to. Sure. Uh, I go by they, them. Um, and I go by they or she. And uh, you guys are both non-binary uh, journalists working in the field. How does your identity factor into your journalistic work? Um, I can jump in on this one. Um, so I do freelance work and a lot of the nature of freelancing means you're freelancing involves pitching luckily I've had like a couple cases where editors come to me about stuff just because I like have certain experience on certain subjects but like in general what you're doing is you're putting yourself out there to other people um, so what that ends up kind of being is uh, sort of I am XYZ identity and I'm running about something with a spin on this identity. It doesn't have to be, obviously, but I think that I've heard from a lot of people who might be in a, a sort of non, I guess like dominant kind of groups that this sort of positioning oneself around kind of their identities um, and that being sort of the main thing they write about is like, 
kind of one of the, the ways in which they approach the industry. And Al, um, when we were speaking earlier, you mentioned this concept of transnormativity in Canadian media in general. And I'm just wondering if you want to like expand on that, talk about that more. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, so I feel like I am becoming less of an identity writer. I'm writing more about general broad topics, news and culture. And as part of someone who's trying to bring transnormative coverage into newsrooms, uh, I'm just kind of keeping a lookout. You know, I'm looking for language, I'm looking for systems, I'm looking looking for structure, I'm looking at how we talk about people that may exclude trans people. I'm basically looking for a trans angle at any point that isn't necessarily a trans issue, if that makes sense. So for example, finding trans sources for any sort of article or looking for ways that we can be less binary existentialist about our language in the newsroom, um, things like that. So it's just like normalizing these identities in like the broader like community of the world. And yes, if you want yeah, to expand I, on that. I like that a lot because um, I think something that's missed in a lot of uh, coverage of trans people that does exist is um, this sort of linking of trans issues with broader issues. Mm -hmm. um, trans issues don't exist independently of the world in which we are situated. Yeah, we're like, not in a vacuum. Yeah, like trans issues include like housing, um, access to healthcare, um, issues around race and racism. Like all of these things are affecting trans people because trans people exist in all these contexts. Like tech is something to do with trans people. Mm -hmm. The school is something to do with trans people. Like there's, there we exist everywhere. Um, so it makes sense to look for ways to include us um, in places where traditionally our stories might have been excluded. So yeah, just going off of that, um, I'm wondering, like you know, oftentimes like trans and non-binary people are typecasted into certain narratives in media, and uh, just going off of that, like what are three tropes in coverage of trans and non-binary people um, that you absolutely hate? <laughs> I don't know if I can do a full three, you know, because I yeah. want to be very negative. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, just kidding, I love being negative. Um, <laughs> but there's one thing that, um, one thing I don't like is uh, um, an obsession with pronouns. Um, I think it's like understandable that yeah. people do this. Like it's sort of one of the main kind of like galvanizing issues. But I think um, if I can get like a little bit political for a second. For sure. Um, as I want to do. Uh, <laughs> I think this sort of pronoun debate is something that's very easy for people to latch onto. It's kind of clickbaity. It's easy to make people sound ridiculous. And so I, I think it's sort of not engaged with intelligently, if that makes sense. Like, I think there's sort of a decontextualized, which is really this issue of um, context is sort of the main thing that I dislike. No one asks why. Um, I was, uh, I was writing a, a story for this magazine somewhat recently that was about narratives around detransition in media. And I found there were all these examples where coverage was uh, referencing how like different demographics are more likely to detransition. Detransition um, is sort of when, when people stop or reverse, I'm doing air quotes, but you can't see it, um, their uh, transition, which is, I think, a lot more complicated um, and nonlinear of a thing than it's sort of represented. But uh, it tends to be that uh, trans women over 30 are more likely to uh, to stop uh, during the transition process. Um, and this was reported, but no one asked why. And the answer seems obvious, is that it has to do with discrimination. But sources written by cisgender people didn't touch on it at all. Um, and so I think that that kind of failure to engage with uh, a material context is something that really plagues a lot of journalism around trans people. So that's one big thing. Okay, so the top three tropes that really annoy me. Um, number one is that we always seem to be dying or in states of dying, and that's it. Like, we'll be covered in a crime story, but we won't be acknowledged for our lives afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. Or we scary. won't be looking at the issues that resulted in our deaths, right? Yeah. It's kind of just like, this person is gone, 
that's it, mm-hmm. right? Number two, uh, that there's only one way to be trans. We, we, ta- we kind of tend to see uh, folks represented in the media who tend to express their gender in conventional and normative ways, which you do you, like there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just when that is the only time you see a trans person on TV, on media, in the radio, that's a big problem. Uh, let's see number three. Oh, I hate misinformation where it's like we're not, you know, the authority over our own lived experiences and doctors always seem to be experts. They're always placed as the, doc- the talking heads uh, whenever it comes to our stories. So I hate that and I hope it dies. <laughs> yeah, it's so rare to see um, a trans source position as an actual um, authoritative source on a subject. Exactly. And I think um, something that you brought up in terms of um, like statistics or, or, or death an obsession with trans death is something that uh, has really shown itself for me as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think part of that, uh, especially in a Canadian media context, is that there's such a dearth of uh, reliable statistics around mm-hmm. trans people. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much the only useful thing that's Canadian specific is um, uh, an Ontario trans pulse. Yeah, It was a, a survey of Ontario trans people related to healthcare sort of subjects, um, and that came out in I think. 20, 2004? A couple years ago, yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, we need yeah. recent statistics, so otherwise we're just pulling stuff from the United States. Um, and I think that that's um, a real issue for a lot of journalists. Like we don't have the ability to actually look to um, sources that are considered more authoritative. And in the absence of that, people don't think, well, I guess we'll actually talk to people. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just like sort of conjecture. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. Uh, just, I kind of want to circle back to like the whole the pronoun circus that yeah, is just always seems to be very It's prevalent. always framed as a battle, can it's I just say? It's yeah. like the fight against this or the, like as you said, or, or it's a combat. Debate. It's yeah. a debate. Yeah. It's not a debate. <laughs> um, yes, exactly. And I think like that's exactly what I was trying to talk about is that um, it's like the whole purpose of making pronouns a debate is just so that it kind of appeals to like cisgendered people, right? Because that's like, I guess, the only way that they can relate to yeah. trans issues when obviously it's not. And so I'm just wondering, like, does this speak to like why like trans non-binary people may not be as like normalized in media? And does this like have an impact on that as well? Like in what way can media like pull away from that and focus on maybe the more like dar- like damning issues? Hire more trans people. <laughs> yeah, that's Give us one. money. We are so underemployed. Um, and it's like not even equally underemployed. Like obviously there's a hierarchy in that trans women and trans feminine folks are like severely underemployed. But like if you have us built into your infrastructure and in your industry, we can voice things that cis folks won't even think of. Mm-hmm. We can ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. We can talk to the right people. We can find the right sources. Um, we can focus on the right angles. I think we're often dealing with uh, people in context where they don't really have that many options in terms of embodying a sort of divergent gender identity. So like if you are like, uh, let's say a university student at Laurier um, and um, you're away from your parents, you suddenly have this freedom, you're exposed to a lot of this new knowledge, this is a period of time where you're learning a lot of different things and exposed uh, to a lot of different people. but you don't necessarily, you have all this sort of um, new knowledge and ideas, but you don't have any access to real community or material sort of um, platforms to kind of make those changes happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's nothing you can really do besides insisting upon your pronouns if you feel like you are someone who, who wants to identify as non-binary. So to sort of make that a thing that like, oh, they're doing something horribly wrong by insisting upon that just feels like petty and mean. Um, I'm also 
simultaneously frustrated with the overemphasis on it just because I think um, it, it sort of allows us to entertain this kind of like bourgeois liberal notion that oh, like everything is a, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then everything is a debate that we yeah, can yeah, be yeah. having debates on certain subjects instead of I mean, part of it's just like be nice to other people but also like I think um, I mean the other side sort of raises a good point in saying that like trans people the existence of trans people and um, the strength of trans activism calls into question a lot of sort of fundamental um, myths of uh, Western capitalist civilization. And I think it's worthwhile to actually engage with the fact that that those things are destabilized by real people who are just trying to live their real lives. Um, and I think that ignites a certain sense of panic on the people, so they want to respond to it quite aggressively. I just, I'm uh, still thinking yeah. about the points you made about that lawyer student, because that's uh, really like, that's the only thing they have control over, how they're referred true. to. They can't change the washrooms, really. Yeah. They can't change policies by themselves, single-handedly. Yeah. Like, they're in an institutional context where yeah. everything is outside of their control. And when you think about it, a lot of trans people are in that position as well, especially yep. if they're black, especially if they're low income, mm -hmm. especially if they're indigenous, like, especially if they're sort of belong to populations that are, that have been historically denied um, like institutional power and access, that it makes it uh, really all you've got is insisting that people call you a certain thing um, and demanding sort of that you get to wear certain clothes that you want. And to have people be so resistant to just that just feels shitty. It does. Yeah. Just say you don't want us want you just say you don't want us to exist. Yeah. Like that's simpler. So I guess like with all that in mind, like what can journalists do to change the course of that conversation? I really don't want to say hire more trans people again. Yeah. But that's gonna... what it comes down to. I mean, they're right. Hire more trans people. Yeah, no, and that's definitely true in, in terms of like Canadian media has like their faults in reporting on like marginalized people in general. Yeah, like, it's already it's, a snowstorm of yeah. mayonnaise yeah. everywhere. <laughs> if they're not doing race right, right, how can we expect them to do trans issues right? Like yeah. let's be real about that. Yeah, no, uh, exactly. So I think that's also um, that raises uh, another question. Um, and sort of like if we can't find any opportunities, if we can't find any opportunities for success kind of going through traditional channels, what are the other options? Is there potential for um, building kind of parallel um, media structures? And mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if that is possible um, because sort of a lot of the attempts that have already existed um, still end up being majority white. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> And majority male. Yeah. yeah, right, right. And they still, if they get funding, for example, they they may still cater to a cis audience, which I think yeah. we're very sick of. We're tired. Yeah. We keep having the basic 101 question of like, what's it like being this? Or what is it like for you at work? And I'm like, yeah. that's great, but let's keep going beyond that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the audience point is, is a good one. That like they're, The fact that they're looking to a cis audience and ultimately taking cues from the buying power of a cis audience uh, means that people are going to be necessarily limited in the kind of representation that they offer. Like Even there can be the most well-intentioned people with the best politics, but they are necessarily going to have to kind of follow the logic of the market and not to sort of go back to the higher, more trans people, but I think a way in which to kind of counter that is for people in general to hire more trans people um, and for wages to increase overall for, for people to have more gainful employment um, because that would make it possible for marginalized people to um, uh, to act as sort of an economic block. Mm -hmm. I love um, how we've become filthy capitalists <laughs> today. <laughs> I'm here for yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm also arguing for economic redistribution. So it's uh, <laughs> socialism with trans characteristics. 
Can you give us an example of a recent story that dealt with trans people or trans issues that the mainstream media had gaps in their coverage? So, a very irresponsible Atlantic writer named Jesse Single, who for some reason has a trans beat. If yeah, that's I, weird. Please, like, correct me if I'm wrong. That's weird. But he's ever since, a, yeah, yeah, he's really got a shtick. And it has a Toronto angle in that. Um, a doctor at CAMH who had a gender identity clinic um, when his clinic closed down because he was being super awful. Um, Jesse Single somehow started reporting on trans issues, specifically on detransitioning in air quotes, because he really like covered it in an incredibly dangerous way. Um, I think detransitioning is super weird in the media in that we always seem to cover the beat where it's like, she thought she was a boy, but she's actually a girl, where it's like, Okay, that's a cis person then. <laughs> Whereas, like, if we talk about actual transitioning, detransitioning, which, like, is an issue that affects a lot of us, we're not looking at stories that should be really talked about. For example, are you detransitioning because you're facing violence every day? Are you detransitioning because you can't afford your moans, uh, your hormones? Like, the purpose of that story wasn't to, like, make anyone feel better. It was sort of like a dog whistle for, like, transphobes to be like, hey, you can leave this on your ki- your gender-questioning kid's desk. Here you go. Um, I just hate it. I hate that take. I hate that story. And I think it caused a lot of harm. Mm. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd echo that. Um, I think that's it's sort of part of a family of takes that are... Um, that really have, like, a, a different purpose. Like, they're, they have a, this obvious kind of ulterior motive of, like heterosexual border policing through clickbait that like <laughs> it's sort of term. a way did you come so, up with it that yeah i did i wrote it down. <laughs> um it's sort of a way of just like um defining uh transness as a phase um and sort of uh reinforcing these kind of very particular bodies of knowledge um that just see uh, a particular narrative of transness that like oh I have no problem with trans people I just don't think these people are actually trans and let me try to prove it um, it sort of starts with these baseline assumptions and I can't think of an individual piece like that I don't read a lot of cis writers honestly, um, honestly. <laughs> that sounds stupid but I mean like I don't <laughs> I don't uh, I don't go out of my way to like read takes by cis people on trans issues um, I think there there have been some instances where there have been good reporting um, I remember um, uh, in Toronto, when um, Alora Wells' uh, body was found and identified, um, Denise Balgasun and Tutan Ha uh, mm-hmm. wrote for Globe and Mail a very good article, and as far as I know, they're both cis, um, about um, her life and sort of put it in context and talked to a lot of people who actually knew her. Um, and that felt really good to read. It felt really um, comforting. I didn't know her personally, but... Um, you know, she was not much older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and different circumstances, but it, very, it felt very intimate. Um, so I think I think things can be done right, but it sort of takes people who kind of, um, and I don't want to essentialize this, but I think have an, uh, an existing experience of marginality who have sort of had to deal with the kind of bullshit they encounter in newsrooms of people trying to report on communities that they have no business um, coming to from mm-hmm. a, a, a place of privilege. That's so true. Um, so I think that there's like a willingness to actually like learn and understand and, and approach things in sort of non-conventional humanizing ways. Um, I think it's possible. I just don't think it's common. It all boils down to good faith. Yeah. Because Denise and the other person, they obviously was like, they weren't going into like, we should wonder if this, like, how she died or like really yeah. invasive, awful questions. Yeah. Whereas with Jesse, you know his intentions were, yeah, as you said earlier. These are very, uh, yeah. these are very humanizing. Um, and talking about good faith, um, 
I uh, I wrote for this magazine and for Briar Patch sort of stories that were a little bit difficult in terms of like that they required sort of game talking with a lot of trans sources about sort of underreported kind of weird subjects um, or just like upsetting subjects and there's an exercise of sort of good faith in that like approaching someone in the kind of the right ways and there were instances where I offered compensation which is not really a thing that you're supposed to do and um, that was something that I think was very important to me because that's like um, th- I'm coming there with a recognition that and this is very small compensation nothing compare it doesn't compare to the sort of way that money travels around in bourgeois media but like in <laughs> recognizing that the knowledge that people are providing me with is specialized knowledge that they've gained through um, often traumatic life experience um, and a lot of reporting is an extraction of experience leaving very little behind um, and a lot of people have encountered um, the media in very harmful ways uh, and it's important to sort of try to redraw that relationship where you can and and do it from a place of uh, love and trust and that and that is reflected in other people back to you Al, in 2016, you wrote an article for Torontoist about Sprout House, a YMCA shelter specifically designated for LGBTQ youth. You wrote about the ways that the general shelter system fails LGBTQ youth and, and spoke to people who live at Sprout House about the struggles they face when it comes to housing instability. What do both of you think mainstream Canadian media misses when it comes to covering issues of poverty in the trans community? Uh, that article and sort of related ones um, have been really useful to me in some of the, the work that I've done, um, particularly um, a piece I wrote for this magazine um, about um, trans women that have been lost in Toronto over the past several years. Um, so there's actually a lot of, I was just talking before about how there's an absence of uh, good statistics, but there's actually a lot of Toronto-specific data about uh, LGBTQ youth homelessness, like very specifically, which is sort of a Can name. I just say why, though? Because oh, why? of a trans man who's like a homeless re- homelessness researcher. Oh, is this Alex like, Abramovich? Yes, this is someone who's Abramovich? come up in, at, in mm-hmm. everything and is quoted in everything, um, which is cool, but also weird that it's just the one person who's mm-hmm. sort of doing it. But also shows how much can be done when someone is given the opportunity to actually like share their work and the people that they've talked to. Imagine um, that. Yeah, so I think um, this is something that I think uh, uh, there's actually a lot of information on, and yet there's not tons of reporting on unless it's sort of done by people who have that kind of focus, um, like Al has. So I think that like that kind of thing is um, is such a, a good indication of sort of the uh, the scope of the issue that we're dealing with. Um, but what I would love to see is um, a connection between that and other things, like uh, um, the opioid crisis, um, issues around um, rent and housing sort of more broadly. I think poverty is just undercovered in Toronto um, and Canada sort of in general. Um, there's only one, I think, full-time labor reporter, um, and that's for the Toronto Star, I believe. Um, and that's... Like that used to be a huge bureau in newsrooms sort of around the country, and that's been so dramatically reduced. Um, and labor is under attack from so many different angles that like this is something that um, I think really should be um, more in focus in general. And the trans angle, I think I think um, the time is right for that trans angle to come out. Mm-hmm. i I do want to touch on respect or like trust. Um, I think another reason why trans data is so like underseen and we're not seeing a lot of data on poverty and transness is because trans folks don't trust the media. Mm-hmm. Like I actually 
I will see on my Facebook a lot of times where a trans woman will have died and it will be related to like an issue or be related to use or be related to something and because her friends don't trust anyone in the media you never see it reported and there's so many names that I have never seen in, in a newspaper or on, in a publication and it breaks my fucking heart and it, a lot of times they died because of poverty or these are these are almost all of these are like poor trans people mm-hmm. I can think of that's like, like a really worthwhile like I'll just start seeing out. my friends like mm-hmm. posts and I'll be like this person's gone too but I will never see anything about the media of yeah. like this is a trend wrap up in one sentence can you think of one policy newsrooms can adopt to better report on the trans and non-binary community operate with the assumption trans people are among you already don't Mm. just don't just start oh we have to reform our policies because we have so and so coming in no do it now get consultants in do some training so that when that person comes in they don't feel terrified or think that they have to become a walking talking textbook because that's tiring. It's so exhausting. We're not seeing trans folks and non-binary folks entering into the media openly yet. We're seeing mostly as freelancers, which is a super marginalized, super precarious occupation to have right now. Um, to become, to get into those like stable positions in the industry, that's going to take a lot of reform. Yeah, I can't speak too much to sort of newsroom environments, but I think. Um uh, uh, a good policy with respect to trans people um, should kind of come from the same place as uh, a broader kind of like anti-discrimination and anti-harassment policy. Um, and I think this is something that, uh, if I can tell you a book, uh, <laughs> something that uh, came up before, um, I think there's a, a lot of the, the reporting and thereby kind of the way in which people talk about stuff and feel it's acceptable to talk about stuff um, on trans people. Um, or on really any sort of like marginalized group and, and any kind of set of social issues, um, kind of reflects like what is going to be the most in line with um, capitalist interests. Like a lot of the reporting on feminist issues has to do with um, powerful women um, and powerful men um, and the almost non consequences that these already incredibly wealthy men uh, experience. Um, and there's uh, very little sort of discussion about how this uh, kind of uh, these same issues are materialized in ordinary kind of working people's lives, um, and I think if we sort of extend that kind of broader idea, like we don't really have the language in I think a lot of workplaces um, to think about trans people in a holistic, responsible way, um, just because it's not um, people don't have a financial incentive to do so. I don't know if that's even like a like a real uh, prescription for kind of uh, policy action as much as just like like a hot take on something that I think sucks. Like it's just <laughs> we have a lot of um, difficulty engaging with people sort of um, uh, in good faith and with an openness to actually learn something and challenge based on assumptions. And I think just that kind of attitudinal shift followed by a willingness to put one's money where their, their mouth is, even if it doesn't seem logical in kind of a capitalist sense could translate to some really good gains across the board. Mm. Aldonado and Alex Berman, thank you guys so much for coming on the show today. Me too. Thank you for having us. So the time has come for our favorite segment, pull quotes. Mikhail, you seem excited for this one. What do you got? 
Well, uh, on Wednesday, the cover of McLean's December issue was released. And uh, I'm going to tell you a bit about what it looks like. So, against a black background, five men are photographed in their suits with blue ties. And a headline that says, The Resistance, a powerful new alliance of conservative leaders, is taking a stand against the Liberals' carbon tax plan. And then in bold, Welcome to Justin Trudeau's Worst Nightmare. And so uh, these five men from left to right are uh, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, UCP leader Jason Kenney, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister, and Ontario Premier Doug Ford. So these five men are all facing the camera with Andrew Scheer in the center, kind of the leader of the pack. And it's this like power stance. And of course, um, everyone on Twitter uh, has been endlessly mocking it since it came out, including our lovely producer, (laughs) Angela. Um, So I have done a little roundup of some of my favorite uh, analyses on this cover. Uh, And so first of all, McLean's itself and when they tweeted out their cover story said, powerful conservative leaders from across the country are suddenly united against Justin Trudeau's carbon tax plan and they're spoiling for a fight. Meet the resistance. Read the full story by at Inglis PW, which is Paul Wells. And so uh, Mac Lemoreux from Vice tweeted about this cover and said, when you think Swiss chalet is quote unquote ethnic food, Jennifer Keysmat, who recently ran for mayor, said, I'm 100% sure this headline was supposed to read the status quo. Uh, Robin Erbach, the opinions editor at CBC, said, Canadians being mad at a McLean's cover deserves its own heritage minute. And finally, Vice put out 70 bad one-liners about the great conservative resistance photo. And my favorite one was, Siri, show me a box seat at a Steve Miller band show. So... That's my pull quote. It's hilarious. Okay, Lydia, what have you got? This week, I want to highlight a new independent news agency focusing on the stories of African Nova Scotians. This group is called the Objective News Agency, and it was started by two journalism grads from King's University, Sandra Hennebohm and Tunde Balogun. The pair is running their agency based on donations and have launched a new mini-documentary series that will fill in where coverage is lacking in traditional media. You know, I I found this article on CBC and it was written very well. Um, What I really appreciated was how the reporter took the conversation a little deeper to talk about the history of black media in Nova Scotia, which, to my surprise, is been around for a really long time and has um, seen a lot of changes. My pull quote from the article is, it's an outlet for people to learn about their own history, their own contributions to, at the time, a growing nation. It provides insight into community building. So that quote is from Claudine Bonner, an associate professor in women's and gender studies at Acadia University. Um, Thought that was really important, really cool thing to make note of about Black media and its existence in Canada. Thank you, Lydia. Thank you. And that's our show. Thank you to Al Donato and Alex Berman for joining us today. Thanks to Angela Glover and Lindsay Hanna for technical help. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. 
If you learned something today, please help us spread the word by sharing our show on social media and leaving us a rating in iTunes. You can find me on Twitter at Liddy Abraha and me at Michal Stein too. You can also visit rrj.ca for new stories every week. We'll see you next week on Poke Quotes. <laughs>